Welcome to Torah at Work. Um, this installment will be talking to Jewish nonprofit professionals. They have positions of leadership that present unique challenges and unique opportunities, and we look forward to gaining insights into what they do and perhaps gleaning tips from what has worked for them. So I just have to open with an apology. I have a cold. I don't know how radio broadcasters work when they have colds, but I guess you'll see how I do. Uh, so I have with me, I'm fortunate, and thank you both for coming, I have with me Rachel Wasserman, who is the executive director of uh, the Jewish Women's From F uh, Fund of Atlanta, and she has been for the past six and a half years. It's an organization that promotes social change and opportunities for women in the Jewish world through grant making, advocacy, and education. Is that right? That is correct. Is that, and I got it straight from the website. <laughs> yeah, that's Hopefully good. Hopefully it's, it's correct. I update the website, so it's <laughs> usually pretty accurate. Okay. Um, Rabbi Yitzchak Tendler, long time no see, uh, is the executive director of Beth Jacob Atlanta, Congregation Beth Jacob Atlanta. Um, some of the audience are familiar with that synagogue. I think it's safe to say that it's definitely one of the leading shuls in America, uh, possibly the world. Would you agree? I mean, uh, I would say so. Certainly, nu numerically, it's one of the largest Orthodox shuls in America, and it's also, it's for sure, a uh, flagship. It's so, accurate. for uh, yeah, a, a little self-advertising. Uh, by the cookie, right? If you ju judging by cookie size, we're the by far the biggest in the world. Yes, Mrs. Gris. So, Mrs. Gris, of course, is referring to the large cookie mosaic that Rabbi Tendler spearheaded a campaign, uh, which we'll, maybe we'll talk about later. Maybe sure. not. You can check it out on our website. In any case, for those who are listening from around the world. And as I've mentioned, I've seen plenty of listens in China and Turkey and other far out places. Um, so for those of you who don't know our show, we're a diverse Orthodox show of over 500 member families uh, with a large facility. It's an engine of Torah and, and tefillah with an extremely robust educational and social program, programming um, repertoire. And there's almost nothing in the show that happens without Rabbi Temler's involvement or direct initiative. So just to, uh, to mention my own personal insight. Um, in addition, on the side, Rabbi Tendler runs a political nonprofit called Young Jewish Conservatives, which we will hear about a little bit later. Uh, but to start, and uh, since it is almost Rosh Chodesh Adar, so we're going to start with a couple of jokes. Nice. So here's what happened when I Googled executive director jokes. <laughs> A young, so I don't know why this is executive director, but we'll just start with this. A young, <coughs> excuse me, a young executive was leaving the office late one evening when he found the executive director standing in front of a shredder with a piece of paper in his hand. Listen, said the executive director. This is a very sensitive and important document here, and my secretary has gone for the night. Can you make this thing work? Certainly, said the young executive. He turned on the machine, inserted the paper, and pressed the start button. Excellent, excellent, said the executive director as the, as the paper disappeared into, inside the machine. I need just one copy. It was a joke, don't worry. Okay, next one. <laughs> These are not mine. Um, next one, knock, knock. Who's there? The annual fundraising event. Okay. Annual fundraising event. That's yeah. the executive That's director's joke, okay. So you're both executive okay. directors. <laughs> Indeed. And if you're still listening, we'll get to some serious material. <laughs> um, so uh, the first question I'm going to ask you is, how would you define that position in your words? Let's start with you, Rachel. So as the executive director of the Jewish Women's Fund of Atlanta, I am responsible for everything that the organization does, from the day-to-day -day mechanics of the administrative work that needs to happen, to the fundraising, working with donors, individual donors, corporate donors, planning events. Uh, we're a grant-making organization, so I oversee the entire grant-making process, which happens all year long. Um, I oversee our finances. I'm responsible for the budget and sticking to it. These are um, grants that your organization provides? We, yes, we give grants to other organizations that um, further our mission of social change for Jewish women and girls. So I raise money and then um, a group of about 100 local Jewish women come together and they make decisions about where the money's gonna go in the form of grants. And how, how, uh, how many grants do you give per year? 
And what's the amount? So, um, so by May, so in a couple months, we will have granted out almost a million dollars um, over the past six years. And uh, last year we gave 18 grants. They're all different sizes because different organizations need different things. So anywhere from $3,000 up to $25,000 um, and uh, to programs locally in Atlanta and also nationally. And then about half of our grants go to Israel. Okay, and I'm going to ask a question on behalf of Rabbi Tendler. Sure. Um, how, how do we apply for those grants? <laughs> Very good. So, it's an ambush. So, um, well, at this point in our grant cycle, we're not accepting any more applications. So okay, first we'll you should, offline, yeah, okay. yeah, wait Next for our year, RFP in the fall. Okay, thank you. Rabbi Tendler, how would you define the position of executive director in your work? Sure, so very similar to Rachel, my job is to, is to move the ball forward in, in every possible way whether it's um, financially or administratively. I mean, here I'm blessed to have a, a very supportive staff. Um, technically, if you look at the, uh, at the Beth Jacob uh, um, staffing uh, ecosystem, so I answer to the board of trustees who are lay leaders, and then I, uh, I supervise a group of people who are the administrative staff of the, uh, of the shul. I supervise the preschool director who herself has a couple dozen uh, teachers underneath working for her and the, um, the facilities manager has uh, facility staff underneath him, but ultimately um, pretty much anything that happens, whether it's, uh, as Rabbi Foxbrenner said, programming related um, or, or anything else. I'll just um, note that as we walked into the room to, to start this program, uh, there was a concerned congregant who made sure that knew <laughs> about uh, something in the facilities that needed attending to. That is correct. So, right. It's a great example. Exactly. Yeah. So, so from uh, so from minute to minute, hour to hour, I could be dealing with any literally anything that you can imagine that has uh, that has to do with the shul, um, and um, you know there was a certain point early on in my in my position here where I realized that you know when people talk about they should do something, or you know they should have done something that the they that I am the they that they're talking about. Um, it took me it took me a few months uh, to figure that out, but. Um, so ultimately, the buck uh, has to stop somewhere on, on, on these kinds of issues that are not purely rabbinic. Where you know, obviously, we are very blessed to have a wonderful rabbinic staff, um, and that's uh, that's my responsibility. I hope that answers the question. Um, perfect, thanks. Thank you. My next question is: This is just in the, in, by way of introduction. We'll end with this. Uh, just briefly, how did you uh, get into your field? How did you land these formidable positions? Let's start with you, Rachel. So as a senior in college, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life and had thought about applying to law school and then decided that that sounded like a miserable idea. And I spoke to my um, rabbi in Kentucky, which is where I grew up, um, when I was home over winter break. Um, and the rabbi suggested a program called Avodah, which is a Jewish uh, social service corps. And I applied to the program and got in. And so what I did was I lived in New York for a year in a house with seven strangers. And each of us worked full time for a different uh, frontline anti-poverty organization. And we got together twice a week to discuss um, tikkun olam and the Jewish values around uh, repairing the world and around communal service. And at the same time, because we all lived together, the third piece of, of this avodah puzzle, so we had the, the work and then the Jewish part and then was the communal living part. So we all um, were contributing to groceries and deciding how the kashrus was gonna work in the house and cleaning and everything else. So it was a very formidable year for me. It was also the year um, that I became religious and um, was the year that I decided to pursue social work. So I was working that year for the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services. The next year I went and worked at the JCC in Manhattan while I was applying to social work school and then I ended up getting a master's degree in social work and a master's degree in Jewish communal service from the Jewish Theological Seminary. So um, it kind of catapulted me right into this uh, line of work. Um, and actually, as an undergrad, I also studied psychology and Judaic studies, even though I didn't realize that that Judaic studies degree was going to end up going anywhere. I thought it just happened, you know, I kind of got it by accident because I took a lot of Hebrew classes. Um, and, and then here I am many, many years later. That was, that yeah. was, a, uh, was a year, but a lot of change, a lot of growth. It was. It was. Big things happen in New York. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then they make their way down to Atlanta and they get even bigger. Yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah, I was actually out of the Jewish communal world for about five years. And then when, um, when we were looking to move to Atlanta, I was specifically looking for a job in the Jewish community and was very excited to be able to find such a meaningful opportunity here. So just briefly, you mentioned um, that that was the same year that you uh, decided to, to take on a religious lifestyle to come from. Um, was there something about that experience that brought that on? Um, so I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, where at the time there wasn't even a Chabad. There, um, as of a couple years ago, there's now a Chabad. So I didn't even know that Orthodox Judaism existed. I really knew nothing about it at all. And um, I went to a university with a really small Orthodox population. So it wasn't until I was in New York and two of my roommates had grown up modern Orthodox and we were keeping kosher and I was working for a Jewish organization where we were closed on Yentiv and Shabbos. And it's just so easy to do all of this in New York that it just kind of happened very naturally and just clicked for me. Oh, okay, Baruch Hashem. Uh, so our um, Rabbi Tendler, would you like to tell sure, us? Sure, yeah, uh, I'll try to, yeah, absolutely. Some of you are familiar with some of the pieces of uh, my journey, but the short version is that um, in 2011, um, I was living in uh, in Israel with my wife and my, uh, at the time, only do- only child, my oldest daughter. We were living in Israel. I was I was teaching and working at Eshet Torah in Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, right in the center everything opposite the Western Wall. Uh, so I was teaching in one of the programs, I was helping run one of the programs, I was very involved in Israel trips, specifically uh, for college students who were coming to Israel uh, to, to explore uh, their Jewish identities. And um, a whole group of, of my friends who were studying together for rabbinic ordination at Eishet Torah were, um, were looking at opportunities in the United States. And a few of us uh, specifically were recruited to a branch of Eishet Torah in Denver, Colorado. And so myself and, uh, and uh, three others were um, headed towards uh, Asian Denver. Um, I was slated to become the executive director of the Ace branch in Southeast Denver. And um, on the way in spring of 2011, uh, stopped here in Atlanta. My wife was expecting our second child, had, had our second child. And, um, and um, during that, that whole process, at the same time, I was trying to launch um, this uh, nonprofit that Rabbi Foxbrunner alluded to, and um, a couple other things uh, came together, and, and I wound up um, actually not continuing on to Denver and staying here in uh, staying here in Atlanta to give it a shot. We were very very much loved the community, and um, I got an opportunity to teach at Yeshiva or Israel and a few other places, and so I did that um, those uh, those different um, things up until 2015. When, um, as as you all might remember, Rabbi Freundlich was transitioning out of his uh, full-time role here at Beth Jacob, and uh, myself and Rabbi Benjamin Sloviter were tapped to be rabbinic fellows to fill in certain critical rabbinic tasks. And during only a couple months into that, um, the uh, previous executive director of Beth Jacob resigned, and I was there, and so I was filling some critical roles the board asked me to, and then um, not too long after, they asked if I would take on the role uh, full-time which I did, I think it was August 2016. So that's the, uh, that's the story, here I am. Excellent, okay, so mm-hmm. uh, as now, that we're, now that we know our contestants, <laughs> our interviewees, um, now let's talk about some of the, um, the issues. So uh, we're gonna break it down into three categories as we have in the past. Uh, the category's a bit different this time for those who've listened to our previous installments. Uh, so they're going to be, um, category one is personal challenges, or opportunities or insights. The next one is going to be religious, and the last one will be uh, a shorter one, um, political successes or challenges. And then we will end with uh, takeaways or messages you would like to impart. So let's start, dive right in, personal challenges. So question one, uh, you're both uh, uh, public figures of sorts, public servants, and you all, you know, you have to be available to respond to the needs of your of your uh, donors, boards, constituents, congregants, uh, assistant rabbis. Um, so how do you manage to both foster those relationships while at the same time creating personal boundaries that, that uh, allow you to operate effectively? So let's start with Rachel. Sure. So. Um, as far as personal relationships go, I try to spend a lot of time having one-on-one conversations with <clears throat> with the um, women with whom I work, and just being myself. I mean, they know about me. They know about my kids. They ask about my kids. Um, they know about 
like what's going on in my life. I try to know about what's going on in their lives. Um, and where they're very different than friendships, they really are true relationships. And because um, I've built such strong relationships with so many people that I work with and so many lay leaders, um, they actually really respect my boundaries as a, as a professional. Um, though when I first moved here, I was very careful to um, only respond to emails during work hours and not to give out my cell phone number and just to start as dialed back as far as I could um, because I knew that it would be a lot easier to become more lenient with those things than to um, try to dial it back later. So as time has gone on, there are certainly some of the lay leaders that I'm closer with who um, will text me or would call me on the weekends if there was really some kind of emergency. But when push comes to shove, we're not um, brain surgeons and we're not um, we're not lawyers, so we're not filing on deadlines with the court. And so therefore, I figure that nothing we're doing is an emergency. Um, and while we are definitely changing lives, nothing is life and death. And so um, when I am um, you know, spending time with my family or taking on other responsibilities, um, I really have no problem saying like, that's where I am and that's where I'm, what I'm doing at the time, but I will be completely available to you when I am available to you. Um, and that's just been something that I was very conscious of when I when I moved here and when I took that role. And I think because I am so clear in those boundaries, um, they're really respected by the people who I work with. The other thing that really helps is that I don't live in the same community as m most of the people um, with whom I work. And so on a Sunday when I'm taking my kids to sports events at the JCC, I will run into my lay leaders and we'll be on and um, you know, will be my professional self, but I don't tend to run into them in the grocery store or in the neighborhood or on Shabbos. And so I'm also able to have those boundaries, whereas I understand that a lot of other Jewish communal professionals um, and, you know, teachers in our community and people who are just always on all the time because they, they work in our tiny little fishbowl. Um, and that's also part of why I don't work in our tiny little fishbowl so that I can have my off time where I can just be myself and not worry that their eyes watching me all the time. So we'll get, and you're segueing perfectly into Rabbi Temer, you know, <laughs> but uh, just, you mentioned that uh, there are times that you have to transition uh, from being your personal self to being your professional self. Sure. So what is, what, what, which one is which and what defines each one? Um, I think that there is actually very little difference between my personal self and my professional self, except for, um, topics that I shy away from professionally, um, which are mainly political in nature. Um, but otherwise, like I'm very much just who I am. I speak my truth. I don't really hold anything back. Um, and I do so in a positive way, I think. So I think that there are very few things that I wouldn't share with my, with my lay leaders about things that are going on in my life. And they have genuine concern about me and care about me. And so it's actually to my advantage to let them know about things that I'm, that I'm going through or that I'm dealing with. So that way they can um, you know, give me that support and understand why I might not be responding as quickly to an email or might not be able to come into the office that day. So by contrast, Rabbi Tendler? Yes. Yeah, so I, I have a little bit of a, of a different situation, as Rachel pointed out. Uh, so I don't really have those uh, moments in, uh, in time that I'm, that I'm uh, you know, my own person or private, as, as you can imagine. Shabbos and Yom Tov and, and other, and other uh, similar, similar days are the days when I'm, I'm uh, if, I didn't, if, if not everything was set up uh, in advance and very often things come up, I'm, I'm constantly on. Um, and dealing with members and dealing with people and dealing with uh, things that come up. Many, many shul executive directors in the tri-state area who have the luxury of doing so don't live near their shuls that they work for, uh, most of them, the ones that, the colleagues, the, the ones that I'm in touch with, for this reason, that they want to have some, some time off. But the truth is that, uh, first of all, uh, I'm very uh, blessed to, uh, to, have, to have lay leaders here who are, who are very considerate and wonderful people. Jonas Ekevan just walked in. He's a member of the Board of Trustees. Um, and um, but but the truth is that it's literally uh, you know I can't think of a day where there hasn't been some direct encounter between myself and uh, and the work that I do. So it's it's a very different thing. But on the other hand, it's uh, it's um, it's something that that um, that if you're if you're creative about about uh, sectioning off uh, chunks of time, 
that you are able to focus on yourself, that it, it can work out. And I, I have a lot of admiration for Rachel for being able to be a little bit firm. It sounded like when you started your position, you were very firm about your expectations and how people should reach you and when they should reach you. Um, and that's something that I've, I've been working on um, more and more. There, there are certain times that I'll ask people, I'll tell them if it's not an emergency, can we, do you mind if we talk on, on Monday? But I, I do have members of the show and others who reach out to me pretty much at, at, uh, over weekends and can you, evenings. Can you, just, can um, you focus on uh, or recall a specific time that was like really just crazy or uh, an event that happened at the state, an emergency that happened at the wrong time or the right time? Yeah. Um, for sure, there are there are plenty of times where you know there's a major event at Shoal starting out maybe on a weekend, and then and there's a congregant who has an issue that they think is a is a burning issue and has to be addressed immediately, but but it's clearly um, something that could wait, and so being uh, diplomatic about it, um, without getting into detail, uh, being diplomatic about it is is uh, probably the most important skill of, of my job. I don't know if the same thing is true with you, Rachel. It might be, but probably the most important skill is knowing how to be diplomatic, really knowing. Uh, how to talk to people, um, and and uh, so yeah, I think that's uh, the most important thing. But one one important uh, piece of this um, also has to do with setting expectations for how people can reach you. So that's one of the issues I have because at any given uh, point in time, including right now, um, I have people who reach me through email, through text message, through WhatsApp, through uh, um, landline. Right? I right now have voice messages on a landline and on a cell phone. I'm sorry. 99% of them are from Jonas and Kavan, but I'm just kidding. Um, and Facebook Messenger. There's no joke. I literally had somebody make a $10,000 pledge to the show using Facebook Messenger directly to me, to my private Facebook account, which is not, you know, that's not something that, you know, I mean, if anybody were to ask me, I would say, you know, send me an email or call me in the office. But um, and the money the, actually has So I would say thank you yeah, so no, that's much. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> great then, that they did. I, and then can you call me so on that's Monday? So that's office. a great case for being as accessible on, on any, yeah. any reasonable platform. You know, if people want to send Carrier Pigeon with $10,000, they'll take it, you know. <laughs> that's fine. Um, but but in, in, the, in the age of the smartphone, you know, there's, there's um, um, tons of different ways people can reach you. And if you don't set expectations, they're going to use every single possible one of them. Um, including knocking on your door. You know, there are people who, there uh, recently there's somebody who dropped a check off for a Shoal sponsorship at my house, right? So, you know, there, you know these, these are all great and I'm, we're appreciative of, of everybody and what they do, but these are like small nuances that... Um, have you taken any specific measures to try to cut back or to train people how to contact you or how not to contact you? I spoke to somebody today and they said, I heard you, you like emailing. So I guess I'm, I've developed a reputation for asking people to send an email because that's the most organized way to just keep track of things. Hear that, everybody? Email. Yeah. <laughs> why Tumblr? Email, why Tumblr <laughs> at uh, Um So, uh, yeah, I mean, there are certain people who are very active in, in shoal functions that I'm most in touch with. They know that I, I, I avoid, I, I try to have my phone off uh, during dinner time, that kind of thing. Um, and if they, and if it's not an emergency, I prefer if they call me during normal business hours. So. So over the past couple of years, I actually um, have set a rule for myself over certain vacation periods. So like a week um, in the summer or over uh, winter break, where I will not check email during that time at all. I make it very clear beforehand to my executive board that I won't be, and you know how they can reach me if there's a true emergency, which is call call me on my cell phone. And I've, in order to make myself. Um, accountable for that I've like bribed myself that if I don't check my email for the week that I can have some kind of treat or prize at the end because I think it's so important to take that time off and to take that time for yourself and for your family um, What's and an example of a treat or a prize? and so oh what is I mean you could pass I, I don't know like a manicure or something like nothing huge um, but just something where I know that I'm accountable to myself because inevitably if I did open that email there would be like that email from that person that would just totally turn my whole day and you know we we all deserve vacation time even Rabbi Tendler. <laughs> Thanks Rachel I appreciate it. So you have positions of leadership in the, in the community or in your organizations um, do they give you unique opportunities to, to give or to, to do good that you've uh, come across recently? 
Rachel, we'll start with you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, my day to day is is having the opportunity to give back to my community, and that's why I love to um, to work within the Jewish world. Um, but one one incident that um, comes to mind that's actually like in the works right now is that a few weeks ago I was contacted by a student at the University of Maryland, Hillel, who found me on Google. Um, because she is organizing an alternate spring break trip to Atlanta in two weeks uh, about women's health. And so she was looking up Jewish women Atlanta, and luckily uh, she came across me. I was very happy to hear that she found me on Google. Um, it means our, our search engine optimization is working well. Um, and so she reached out to me, and now I'm going to be meeting with her group and talking to them about philanthropy and um, women's philanthropy, and we'll be training them on human trafficking because that's something that I've been working on a lot lately. Um, and then I was also able to connect them to other professionals in the Beth Jacob community and throughout Atlanta. And I have no connection to the University of Maryland Hillel. I mean, both of my parents happen to have gone to University of Maryland, but she didn't know that. And so it really excited me. It really excited the people that I work with to be able to meet with college students who are coming in to see Atlanta and show it, you know, show it off. Um, and it was such a cool opportunity, you know, just because of, of what I do. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really excited to meet with them in a couple of weeks. Great. Uh, Rabbi Tamler, any uh, Yeah, I mean, there's so much I could share. So interesting opportunities to help people. So um, I'll share with you one story, which um, was from... Uh, I'm not going to tell you exactly when, but you'll see why from the story. Um, but I was once contacted by a congregant, by somebody um, in the broader community who's a um, who was making a bar mitzvah for their child, um, and they they called me. They asked actually a halachic query. The question was that they had a friend um, who had a who had a son who who had had a, had a bar mitzvah and. Um, received tefillin for, for his bar mitzvah, but was no longer observant and was no longer wearing those tefillin. And so she asked, would it be permissible for her to take that young man's tefillin and use it for her own son for his bar mitzvah, for his first pair of tefillin? And um, obviously I would pass on the question to rabbis regardless, but what I, as soon as that question came into me, it reminded me there's a famous story uh, from one of the, uh, the greatest rabbis of the, uh, of the 20th century, the Brisker Rav. He once received a question from somebody who asked, who asked, is it permissible to, to, to use milk for the four cups of, instead of wine, for the four cups of wine on the, for Pesach uh, night for the Seder? And he inferred from the question that these people couldn't afford wine. That's why they're asking the question and help them obviously afford wine. So similarly, this same case, you know, we realize, I realize obviously that this woman's only asking this question because she couldn't afford a pair of children for her son. And that was a great opportunity to connect her with uh, the rabbi, with uh, Rabbi Feldman, who has, people who give to the rabbi's charity fund who were thrilled for the, at the opportunity to provide a, a, a bar mitzvah boy with his first pair of tefillin. And so these kinds of, these kinds of opportunities where it's not an explicit ask, um, but you can kind of infer from where people are holding what could be helpful for them, that's, uh, that's, one, that's one example of a way to help, uh, way to help people. Um, do I have time for another, another couple, another couple of examples? Um, actually, a very, very recent example this, I was, I'm going to share the Kay Wilson story, if that's okay with you, because um, I don't know if you all know, this is actually the backstory on a story that some of you might have had something to do with, and it's, it's an unbelievable story that, that um, I'm, I feel very privileged to have played a small role in. So as some of you know, uh, at the end of January, we hosted Kay Wilson, terror, uh, uh, a British-born uh, Israeli tour guide who was a victim of terror um, in Israel. And uh, she was basically sh short story. She was giving a tour to a, a Christian woman from Texas. They were attacked by Palestinian terrorists, and the um, and basically uh, they were executed, or or so the terrorists thought. Uh, the Christian woman died, and Kay Wilson miraculously survived. And because she survived, she was able to to uh, because of DNA evidence, able to lead the police to the murderer who had previously murdered somebody else a year earlier. And the case had gone cold, and she she helped them solve it. So the way the K, the way Kay Wilson came to Atlanta is a very interesting story. I was contacted pretty much out of the blue uh, by somebody, a woman I had never heard of. Um, her name is Cheryl Durchinsky. She lives in Norcross. She actually runs a very popular uh, Facebook group called Jewish Moms of Atlanta. And uh, and Cheryl reached out to me out of nowhere 
essentially saying that she she wants to bring the K. Wilson story to Atlanta. And I had been familiar with the K. Wilson story, so I jumped at the opportunity. In fact, I tried to reach out to, to them unsuccessfully. I, I said, that's great. We'd love to host it at Beth Jacob. And so she said, um, how will we raise the money, how, et cetera. I said, don't worry, we'll work it out. We'll create a program. It'll be compelling. People will want to come to this program. So she took, uh, she wanted people to come to this program. So she sent a link to, um, to Kay, information about Kay Wilson to a whole circle of her acquaintances. Uh, she lives in, in Norcross, but she has friends in Sandy Springs and other, other areas. And there was a, a particular uh, person who received uh, her email who was going through an incredibly difficult uh, um, period in her life right then. Um, on top of her, her personal family troubles, she was the head of a software firm that was, that was on the receiving end of multiple lawsuits, um, had gone from 25 employees down to five. 20 of her employees had left her. She was about to file for bankruptcy, and her life was in shambles. She was uh, in a very, very challenging uh, psychological place, to say the least. And, uh, and so what happened was is that she clicked on a link to a, to a TED talk that Kay Wilson gave. She gave a TED talk called The Idiot's Guide to Surviving a Machete Attack. It's on YouTube. And um, she watched this TED talk and, and this, this uh, person, who's again a friend of Cheryl's, cried through the entire film, through the entire presentation. And at the end of it, she said to herself, she said, if Kay Wilson can survive her trauma and come out as, as op so optimistic and positive, I can do the same. And so she called in her remaining five employees and she said to them, we're gonna turn this company around. And, she, and they started working around the clock and, and actually, she said, I, let me take a step back. She said, we're going to turn this company around, and 10% of any income that comes into this company from this point on is going to go back out as charity. She starts working out of nowhere, miraculously. She'll say miraculously. This is a person who's not very religious. Miraculously, she landed a few major, major clients in the months of December and January alone. Who can guess how much money she has given to charity? 10% of what... Her company has earned to Jewish, almost all of them, to Jewish charities in Metro Atlanta. She's given over ninety thousand dollars to Jewish charities in Metro Atlanta. Okay, um, including she also was a sponsor of this Kay Wilson event, which you know it just worked out. So this is just it's just something where I didn't really have to do much. I just agreed to help this person uh, arrange a program here, and and it literally changed somebody's life. This uh, you know this uh, this person's life. So that's. Um, that's an un you rarely do you see a, such a direct link to to helping people as as in that story but that's uh that's uh, a story that's a i mean story. i could tell more stories but yeah. that's uh, that's a recent one yeah rachel anything to add i mean our whole the whole goal of my organization is changing lives right. and so um, it's hard to pick out any, you know, any one specific case because I spend my days reading reports from our grantees about, um, about lives that have been changed as a result of the work that we're doing, which is how I get through the hard times or the slightly boring times or, you know, whatever other times there are because I know that all the work that we're doing is going towards um, making, the better making the world a better place and making the world a better place for Jewish women and girls. So you're both involved in very valuable work. Have you ever experienced uh, scenarios where you, your position or your organization has, has been undervalued, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, for us, what's challenging is because we're engaging in social change work, and I'll explain what that is, um, it takes a lot of time to see results, and so it can be hard to quantify um, the, the impacts that we're making. So an example of social change um, in the, in the non-women's funding world would be something like seatbelts or recycling, where you know maybe 30 years ago, whenever you got in the car, like it was a whole challenge. Nobody was just automatically putting on their seatbelt, and now you know, I do it without even thinking about it. And then similarly with, with recycling or um, in the women's funding world, um, you know, you can think about um, uh, women's health, women taking care of their bodies in ways that, um, that nobody used to do and now, now is very regular. Um, with the work that we're doing, um, a lot of it is about um, changing, changing laws in Israel, which um, I think we'll get to in a little bit. Um, things like uh, 
ending violence against women. <laughs> okay, this is not something that we can snap our fingers and have happen immediately. It's not something that we can make some grants and have happen this year. And so how do you quantify um, after we have a program educating um, high schoolers or college students about um, safe and healthy relationships? How do you quantify that impact? So is it in the number of women that weren't assaulted later down the road because of, you know, of education that they received, um, it, it's, it's just hard to measure. And so um, it's hard to sometimes explain to people what we're doing and why they should contribute because it's hard to imagine what that end goal looks like, right? It's hard to imagine everybody putting on their seatbelt automatically or, or when Mothers Against Drunk Driving started you know, their campaign so long ago where the reality was just totally different and we we're really looking at shifting realities in the world. Um, so it can be challenging to get people to value um, what we're doing because people like to see a quick fix. And so it can be a lot easier to explain a soup kitchen um, or um, a, a shelter where you can measure you know, actual services being, being given um, as opposed to um, change being made on a real communal level. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that is an ongoing challenge, I think, for all social change organizations to say, like, you've got to invest in us in the long haul because this is the long haul, right? I'm not talking about necessarily even my life. I'm talking about my daughter's life and my granddaughter's life and your granddaughter's lives. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, you need to just be patient with us and know that we're going to give you some success stories along the way, but you're not necessarily going to ever see the end result. You just have to have faith that it's going to happen down the road. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about opportunities to give. We've talked about situations where you may uh, be undervalued or not, not able to display your accomplishments um, in a linear fashion. But as I mentioned earlier um, in my weak attempt to start with some jokes, uh, it's almost out there. So have you ever had opportunities to laugh in, in your position? Or anything that would be elicit a, a chuckle or, or just like an interesting twist? Can I just jump back and answer the same, the previous question sure. before before we do the chuckle See, part? That already listed as a chuckle. I just want to say very quickly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There it is. Just very quickly about undervalued. Just uh, and uh, and Rachel touched on a lot of the same point issues that we have in this show, which you know, which is that which is that it's again, it's very hard to put a price tag on something that, especially a show like ours, where you're going to get receive the service. Uh, regardless of how much how much money you give us because that's why we exist but I have had several incidents of members who have let's say gone from being full members to associate members or have, or have left the show and then when a, a loved one a loved one had passed away in their family and they saw the support that came from from this show they you know several months later turned around and said you know what that was a mistake I shouldn't have done that because I see the kind of support that's that's uh, coming from the show and I, and, I, and, I, and I realized that's something that's worth investing in, but they only realized, came to that realization when they needed it, when they needed it. So, so, so educating people on, on what, um, what Beth Jacob does for them on an ongoing basis, um, even when they're not necessarily experiencing loss or experiencing tragedy, but being that is, is something that's a, that's a bit of a challenge. That's to answer the undervaluing. And now to the, to the jokes. You want to take it away first? <laughs> I can't think of anything funny right now because the work that I do is really heavy, um, but we have fun doing it. So that's my answer, is that it feels really good to help people. And so um, the, the beauty of what I do is that when I'm at a meeting, everybody's in a good mood because we're just happy to be there and happy to be working together. Um, and. And that's just a beautiful thing, but I can't think of anything funny right now. That's fine. So I mean, I'll have to come back to the, it. The theme of Simcha is one is one that that uh, that people mix up with jokes. And, yeah. But Simcha really ultimately is about doing good. Hashem Simcha is is taking uh, joy and happiness and seeing the world, you know, in the right place. Yeah. Under under uh, you know un, under the proper control. I just thought of something where we laughed. There was one time. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so we had this idea for this um, for this uh, recruitment event to to get more women involved into my organization, and it was my first, my second year here, and we had this idea to do this progressive dinner 
um, in December. And so we were going to have appetizers at one woman's house. There happened to be several women who lived on the same street. Then we were going to do dinner at somebody else's house. And then we were going to do dessert at the third person's house. And we were going to walk from house to house. And it happened to be a, um, like a crazy thunderstorm that night. And so I had a house full of, you know, dressed up. It was a holiday party, too. It was December. And so everybody's dressed up and, you know, in their, like, really fancy, nice shoes and walking from house to house like drowned rabbits. <laughs> and um, one of the women called ahead to her husband saying, like, we're on our way. You know, put out some towels when you first come in the house. And he went and, like, got their their good guest towels and everybody's, you know, stomping all across them. And it, and it was a total disaster of a night in that sense. But we were all laughing so hard. What could have what could have really ruined the night ended up into turning into something that we still talk about five years later. Um, and, and then actually several years later, we had another huge event ruined by Atlanta weather. Um, so I left New York to come to Atlanta very largely because of the weather and it's actually really like tried to get me at several different times but we were able to just have fun with it because it was just such a ridiculous situation um, that that it kind of you know went down in um, in our memories yeah I'll just share with you some some comic relief that I get sometimes Um, so uh, I don't know how this happened but as you all know Beth Jacobs sends a lot of emails or a healthy amount healthy amount of emails right um, and there's a, there's a woman uh, named Deshaun, um, who as far as I know has never been here, um, I believe she lives somewhere in Florida, who's somehow on the email list. And she will uh, randomly, every few weeks, respond to a shoal-wide email with a response that usually is just totally out of left field. Like let's say it'll be like a mazel tov to somebody in the community, so she'll respond and say, um, I'm trying to make my way up to the bris, my car broke down and my ex-husband said he's not going to pick me up, you know, and then, you know, there'll be an email, you know, there'll be a RSVP for a snow day with the Fox Brunners at Stone Mountain, you know, and she'll write back, you know, um, your excellency, you know, my uh, I'm coming, I'm on my way with my 13 year old son, you know, things like that. And she's never actually been here. I don't know what inspires her to write things, but um, probably every few weeks she'll just write something. Um, sometimes she'll just respond to an email on a totally different topic and she'll just say, um, I just want to update you where things are holding. Can you please call this person to help me, um, you know, take care of something in her life, in her private life? So who knows who she is or why she does it? But um, this is, you know, these kinds of things happen. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Did you try to help? Um, yeah, um, Maybe in the early, uh, in the early days. Yeah. Not recently. Okay, last question of this section before we move on. Um, you know, back to some maybe some practical ideas. Uh, you both lead such you know busy lives with big projects always looming. Any quick practical tips on how you manage your time? Rachel, we'll start outsource with you. everything you can outsource. Um, she actually tried to get out of the podcast. <laughs> tried to send else. in it's a substitute. Double. It's not her. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I read a book um, that this uh, Chabad Rebetzin from, I think, Miami wrote. Um, I read it several years ago, and she talked about outsourcing. And even she considers, like, using her dishwasher as outsourcing. So just anything that saves you time. And that ended up prompting me at the time to hire somebody to do my laundry. I don't have that person anymore. Um, but, you know, if there's something in your life that's taking up way too much time, like, think about what the actual value is of your time um, and figure out if somebody else can do it Um, and then just prioritizing Um, and I try to do a lot of batch work so to the extent that like I can plan all of my social media for the month um, in a day or um, any other kind of you know projects that kind of could be grouped together that I try to do all of that at once because then your mind is just on that single thing instead of doing a little bit of a whole bunch of different things um, and and again what I talked about earlier of just drawing drawing lines and drawing boundaries when you can so that you still can have a personal life great tips Rabbi Tendler anything to add um, no all those points are great and I and some of those um I, I do some of those I should do. Um, it's I think I think it's really about being being a getting becoming more rigid and 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 uh, and scheduling things um, efficiently. I don't think I have anything 
that much more to add to that. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to the next uh, broad topic, which is uh, religious challenges or opportunities. Mm. So uh, one topic that came up, um, I think, in our in our pre-recording conversations from both of you is a topic of dealing with kashras. Now, this is interesting because in the previous sessions uh, of Torah at Work, we talked about kashras from the perspective of Jews in a non-Jewish workplace, and you are Jews who work in a Jewish workplace. Um, so it's interesting that you have had the opportunity to, uh, to stand firm on kashras issues. Rachel, do you have any specific examples? Um, yeah, so one thing that came up for me a couple years ago was that we were about to go on a trip to Israel, and I realized I hadn't, I hadn't been to Israel in 10 years, 11 years, um, and we were going to be spending half of our time in Tel Aviv, and just from my understanding of Israel and Kashrus, it's a lot more complicated than maybe it needs to be. Um, and so I ended up spending a long time on the phone with my rabbi, um, it was before Rabbi Foxbrenner was here. Um, trying to figure out where I could eat in Tel Aviv and just understanding that whole system. And it seems like the last place that I should have to worry about kashrus is on an Israel trip with a bunch of Jewish women. Um, and yet it was actually much more complicated than anything that I'd ever dealt with in the States where it's just very clear to me like what's kosher and what's not kosher. Um, have you had any issues in the States with, uh, with kashrus? You probably have different standards than some of your coworkers. Yeah, so I mean, there are, there are people in the Jewish community who keep kosher, um, you know, to different extents. And so where they may say we keep kosher, it's not necessarily the same way that I keep kosher. Um, and so I just have to handle that in a really delicate way. For a lot of people, they understand that, and if they've met other Orthodox Jews, they they really do understand kind of where my lines are, and they're happy to eat in the same four restaurants with me all the time. Um, like at one point, the one of the servers at Fuego, I think like. She was like giving me looks because I'd been there so many days that week um, on different on different lunch dates with people. Um, but there have been have been sensitive times where people, you know, are maybe more insistent about something that they feel like should be meeting my standards, um, and I have to just kind of skate that delicate line of. Um, you know, I can't go call my rabbi now because I'm in the middle of this meeting, um, but how do I not hurt somebody's feelings and not insult their Judaism? Um, it's very different, I think, when you're dealing with somebody who does have an understanding of kosher and has made their own decisions about it, then, um, you know, when, when I'm at some kind of luncheon or something and I'm just able to tell them, like, I'm sorry, I don't eat, which I've eaten plenty of Luna bars in the bathrooms of luncheons and I have no problem doing that. Um, but, you know, when it's an individual that I have a relationship with, it can be more complicated and just more touchy, and that's where being a social worker plays in. So. Have you ever had a situation where you just have to stand firm? Yes. So um, a few years ago, um, there, was a, there was another big um, Jewish organization in Atlanta um, that I was affiliated with who was having a holiday party, and the holiday party that year for the staff um, was going to be like a, a dinner theater, but at lunch. Um, and it was a Christmas play, and that they were, that was like the theater. Um, and there was a, like a preset menu. One of the items on the menu was chicken parmesan. Um, and there were, I think, two other options. And then they said, if you keep kosher, we'll get you a kosher meal. And I, just thought that was all kind of all kind of wrong. <laughs> um, you know, it was is the holiday party for a Jewish organization. To me, you shouldn't be going to a Christmas play, and you shouldn't be serving chicken parmesan. And I spoke up, and I I didn't go, and I explained why I wasn't going, um, and why I thought that it was all really problematic. And um, was your position understood? It was understood. Um, they didn't change what they were doing, but um, I still made my voice heard, which is how I operate a lot of ways in my life, is that I don't necessarily expect people to change, but I'm going to let them know what I think about it um, as the opportunity maybe to make a different decision in the future. Um, I also happen to think that, especially in Atlanta, where we really do have such a limited um, 
kosher market that it's important as Jews and as Jewish organizations to be supporting those establishments. And so given the opportunity to bring 50 or 75 people, um, you know, business to a kosher cater, I don't understand why you wouldn't take that opportunity and would instead go to a Christmas play and serve chicken parm. So, you know, it may have sounded self-righteous at the time or holier than now, but I really felt like this was one of those moments where I just had to step up and say something because it was just bothering me so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tendler, you know, have you run into conscious issues if they're in the show? Let's yeah. talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll keep the we'll, we'll turn off the mics for that. So yeah, I mean, there are obviously a surprising amount of conscious issues that come up just in the show alone, even with the AKC on site. Um, and by the way, the AKC has video cameras in the kitchen, in addition to them uh, being here, in addition to quite a few rabbis. Uh, quite a few uh, bearded rabbis floating around the building at any given time, um, but there are all, there are always issues, um, um, especially when we are dealing with our facility staff who might not know all the nuances of kosher. So I mean, I'll share one incident that happened not too long ago. Uh, our 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 uh, trusted volunteer chalent maker, Rich Levin, uh, who comes every Friday as a volunteer and makes chalent for the various minyanim, uh, was out of town, and we didn't have somebody to fill in for him. So I was planning on doing it myself. And I, uh, I call up our facility staff and they're like, surprise, we made the challenge and plugged in the pot for you um, because we, didn't want, we knew how busy you were. So, um, so that's a scenario where they were trying to be extremely helpful. Um, and I actually called Rabbi Foxbrunner because I, 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 I believed that there was, uh, you know, there's a reason to, to ask him the question and uh, we came to the conclusion that it was fine. Right? We just unplugged it and plugged it back in, more or less. Um, and and that's uh, it's okay. I mean, it's not ideal, but um, so these kinds of these kinds of scenarios happen. Obviously, related to uh, to Shabbos, especially, uh, all kinds of things happen. Power, you know, plugs don't work, and, and people are tran- transferring hot water from one place to another. And there's cooking issues, and there's kosher issues. Uh, so that's all all here in the shul. There's plenty of that that goes on. Um, in some of the other work I've done, I've I've organized a lot of Shabbatones, um, showing up at a hotel. And making a Shabbos there, you have, I mean, incredible amounts of potential uh, kosher issues. Um, that I mean, there there are just so many. Um, there was one incident which was uncomfortable. I remember where I convinced a uh, a third party Jewish organization to sponsor a Shabbaton for a group that I led, and they committed to a kosher caterer. And I have only lived in places like Atlanta, where if you say there's, it's certified by a kosher certifying agency, um, it means an orthodox kosher certifying agency. I grew up in Baltimore. I'm not, a, I'm not aware of any kosher supervision in Baltimore that's not orthodox, and in Atlanta there isn't. And so I figured that was the case there too, and it was in Philadelphia. And four days before this uh, major Shabbaton, I came to my, uh, came to, it came, um, I was told that it was, um, came to my attention that it was a conservative uh, a certifying agency, and I had to call this organization and tell them firmly, you know, they, they resisted, obviously, uh, that it's not going to be acceptable. And it was, it was very, very difficult. So, so these kinds of things happen. Um, what else? Um, so that's in the realm of, of kashras? Yeah, kosher, uh, go there, ahead. There are other challenges that I've heard from both of you. Yeah. Uh, having put in a position where you're a sort of a spokesperson for religious uh, Jews, religious Judaism, for halacha, uh, Rachel, do you want to share any, any examples or any insights? Sure. So there was a long time where I was the uh, only Orthodox Jew um, working in my building, and I work in a large building with several different uh, Jewish organizations housed within it. Um, and so I was the person that whenever there was any kind of Jewish question whatsoever, uh, people would just forward the phone to me. Um, and so I got questions all the time about, you know, I'm coming to town and I need a Seder or I need high holiday services. Um, Or I got one question one time and I'm just sitting at my desk minding my business and all of a sudden the phone rings, you know, and I answer answer the phone and um, this woman, this woman's neighbor was sitting Shiva or was observing a yard site and wanted, she, the woman wanted to know if it was acceptable for her neighbor instead of lighting an actual candle because she was concerned about her because maybe she had some dementia, could she use an electric light instead? And she really wanted me to give her an answer on that. And thank God I don't actually have a lot of familiarity with, um, with yard site 
and um, actually not a rabbi. And so had to, you know, in a very nice way, answer this woman's question and figure out how I was going to answer her question. Um, and then and then just other times, especially when, when we went on this trip to Israel where I didn't know how I was going to eat in Tel Aviv, um, there were a lot of things that came up um, within my group where I was asked, really put on the spot, like to explain all of the different sects of orthodoxy in Israel and how they all interact with each other and like what does that hat mean and what does that coat mean and what do those socks mean and and I don't know. Um, and, and I also didn't want to say anything that was wrong, but I also didn't want to say anything that was going to perpetuate any negative stereotypes against Orthodox Jews in Israel. And so it really put me in this position um, where, you know, I was just trying to navigate, like, how to answer these questions in a really diplomatic and positive but truthful way with no outside guidance or preparation. Um, and I, you know, I figure it out. I can't tell you now what I said, but I'm sure it was really intelligent at the time. Out of a tender. Yeah, so on the topic of Israel trips, I'll share a story, which I think um, is, uh, is an important one. So I was once leading an Israel trip. Um, this was back in 2012. And um, it was the first Israel trip that I had organized from the United States. I had been involved in many trips while I was living in Israel. Uh, and we had 30 college students from around the country. And... I still don't remember exactly how this happened, but we developed a very close relationship with somebody who back then was an unknown uh, figure named Ron Dermer. Uh, Ron Dermer is currently the Israeli ambassador to the United States. At the time, he was a senior ambassador to the prime minister of Israel, to Bibi Netanyahu. So it was just fascinating. This first trip that I had done from the U.S., we, we got off the plane, had a Hanukkah party with Ron Dermer. Two days later, we went to the prime minister's office, had a meeting with him at the prime minister's office. And at the prime minister's office, um, I remember we were sitting in the room where the Prime Minister has press conferences. It was Ron Dermer, and it was, he was with, I forget the guy's name. He's currently the Israeli ambassador to England, to the UK. It'll come to me. And they were doing, you know, they were answering questions from, our, from the student leaders that, that we brought. And um, um, a girl from the University of Maryland stood up. And during this time, there was a lot of tension, as Rachel was saying, between ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel and, and everyone else. And there were some specific acts that certain certain ultra-Orthodox Jews had, had, had committed uh, against others, and, and she was very offended by it. And so she, she stood up and she said, um, Mr. Dermer, what do you think about, about, these, about this, this behavior? What is the state of Israel doing about it? What is the prime minister doing about it? And so Ron Dermer said something um, which stuck with me, uh, which I think is very important. He said, uh, he said there is a general 5% rule What's the 5% rule? The 5% rule is that every society, every group of people, um, statistically, is entitled to have 5% of their population actually insane. They're entitled to not be, you know, just the way it is. There are people who suffer from, from, uh, from, from challenges, and, and they just won't behave in a rational manner. And so he said, until you can prove to me that any particular behavior is being committed by more than 5% of any group of people, you cannot draw conclusions about that entire group of that entire group of people, and so that's what he said. He said you can point to isolated incidents of people doing things which are obviously inappropriate and wrong, but you can't you can't draw conclusions uh, to an entire group of people based on the behavior of a few, and um, and so that's a very important thing because when you're being called upon to defend other people who happen to look like you or happen to believe a lot of the same things that you do or happen to keep kosher or happen to look a certain way, you don't have to defend them, you know, it, it, unless it is actually a pattern. Of behavior that's really reflecting a, a deep-rooted societal um, uh, pattern. So that's that. That's uh, that's. Um, I think that's an important. That's an important thing related to being a spokesperson. Mm -hmm. Should I? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that good? that's excellent. Great. Um, we're going to start wrapping up, but nearing the hour mark. Uh, so, um, if you have any last remarks you'd like to share um, before I ask the, uh, you know, I want to ask a couple of questions just about. Um, what you find valuable about your work and what you would tell somebody else who's considering nonprofit leadership. Uh, so let's start with that question. If you want to throw in anything else that we missed, uh, feel free to do so in 30 seconds. So, uh, number, so I would ask you both, what do you find most inspiring about your position? Let's start with you, Rachel. So in Judaism, we say, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? And so for me, every day, I'm fighting for, the, for equal rights for Jewish women and girls, which can't be any more personal. 
Um, and so I don't have a lot of free time and I don't feel like in my free time I need to be um, volunteering or, or doing good elsewhere. I mean, I would love to be, but and hopefully one day, but right now in my life circumstances with four small kids and a full-time job, I feel very fortunate that that full-time job allows me to give back so much to my community so that I don't, I don't feel um, like I'm missing out on, on doing that in my free time. Um, what I do say to people who are considering work in this field um, and in nonprofit in general is just to understand that you don't get into this to, to make a living. <laughs> um, and for people to really go in eyes wide open about the realities of, um, of the earning potential of people in nonprofits. Um, you know, because while I earn a lot um, from my heart and in what I'm able to give back, um, there are certainly more lucrative ways to, to make money and then to be able to give to your community in very different ways through tzedakah and through other, um, other things. So I, I wouldn't want to romanticize it um, too much and not, and not emphasize that. Um, but also, it is just so incredible to be able to give back to your community or to any community. I've worked for other causes in the past that aren't as personal to me. Um, and at the end of the day, when I'm making people's lives better, um, I can go to bed feeling like, a good person, um, and good. that to me is what Hashem wants from all of us. So. <coughs> very nice. Yeah, that was beautiful. Uh, so very similarly, I'm very inspired by the people that that I come into contact with. Anybody that's part of this uh, part of um, the Beth Jacob uh, organism is somebody who's choosing to to um, to take to take a stand for their Jewish identity. Um, um, some just by being associated with the shul, just by being members, others by stepping up and being members of the board of trustees or being volunteers in other way and giving of themselves and their time. Um, and it's, it's and a lot of people who give up their resources. And it's just very inspiring to see people. Um, it's, it's, it's important to step, take a step back. And any challenges that exist are, are, are you have to realize that they're, they're because people are passionate and care about, and care about their Jewish identity. And um, I, I personally am constantly inspired by people, um, uh, by, by people who push themselves, uh, give of themselves constantly. Um, and so I would tell somebody who's interested in a, in a, in a similar position to mine that they, they will find it very rewarding if they have the right perspective. Um, it, won't always be, uh, it won't always be fun and games, but um, it will probably always be meaningful if you can, if you can put everything into context. And, um, and we also have a great time. And we also have a lot of fun. This is true. This, this is true. This, uh, this podcast is an example of of, uh, of your giving nature, both of you. I thank you both for sure. taking the time. Rachel, you said you had no time to give, and yet we've been here for an hour plus the time we spent in the pre-recording, the conversations, and uh, it's been very valuable. So we learned about your positions, learned about what brought you to your positions, learned about your uh, tips for uh, challenging uh, practical scenarios um, and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, religious difficulties and kashras, being spokespeople, etc. So that's all been uh, very valuable and we've only really scratched the surface. We had so much more material. I apologize, we couldn't get to everything. Uh, maybe we'll have to leave it for next season. Uh, but I, again, I thank you both for your time and I'll turn it over to the, does the audience have any questions they would like to ask? Yeah, Ray, okay. my question to you is, could you give us some specific examples what you grant um, about rights for women, not necessarily only that, but some examples. Sure. Um, I'll repeat the question because I don't know that it was picked up by the mic. So the question is just some specific examples of grants that we give. Um, so uh, locally in Atlanta, we've um, We've funded several projects um, for the prevention of violence against women, largely working with co-ed populations of, um, of high school students, college students, and also sometimes with middle school students to um, teach both boys and girls about healthy relationships and um, to teach men um, and young men about how to step in if they see something happening. Um, that shouldn't be happening. So to be active bystanders, um, we've also and so we've so really specific. We've funded that at um, at the Weber School. We've funded it at Emory University, at the U 
University of Georgia um, and through uh, Jewish Family and Career Services. Um, we have uh, right now a grant to the Atlanta Jewish Academy um, for a women in STEM program um, and have done some other uh, leadership leadership programs for young girls um, in Atlanta. And then in Israel, um, we've funded um, several organizations there that address um, legal issues that women have that would never be the case in America because we have separation of church and state and Israel doesn't. Um, so issues around um, marriage and divorce, so um, helping um, Aguna rights, um, women who are trapped in abusive marriages by husbands who won't give them a get. Um, and then several other laws, things, things related to the Army, women in the Army. Um, and most recently, just as a very um, concrete success story, um, we are working with an organization called Atsum, which um, fights against human trafficking and prostitution. And they successfully um, got a law passed in the Knesset. It actually passed unanimously on December 31st, um, criminalizing the purchase of sex and providing um, rehabilita rehabilitation services, excuse me, for um, victims of trafficking and prostitution. Um, that took at least five years um, of work on their part to make it happen and a lot of time with Knesset members and they're constantly turning over and you know the politics are changing and shifting and I don't begin to try to understand how Israeli politics work, um, but it took a lot of work and a lot of time and um, we feel so proud that, that now um, that's, you know, that's been passed and now they can move on to the next step of enforcing it. Great, Great question. Any, any other follow-ups? Paula? When you talk about setting boundaries, one of the previous sessions that I attended, there was a lot of talk about people taking their cell phone to bed and having that going on all night long and whatever. So is that a problem for you? I do turn it off at a certain point. Yeah, absolutely. I keep it off during usually from uh, from roughly five thirty to seven thirty, like while I do dinner time, um, and then I turn it off again a couple hours later. Yeah, I was yeah. astounded. Yeah. To hear that people actually have their part, their oh, yeah. smartphone on their pillow. Yeah. See, but you know, you said that, Rabbi Tendler, but you know, I have very occasionally sent an email at a crazy hours so that you could answer it <laughs> when during office hours or through yeah. convenience yeah. and I'll get I'll get answers from you. Is that a complaint? <laughs> I know. Like a crazy I know. So I, I know how good you are at that. I know. I need I to mean, be better. I try to be considerate, but then oh my goodness. I need to be better. There's one there's one person that she emails me and says I you know I I, I do not answer until until tomorrow. Yeah. And then I write back the next day. I had to control myself all night. Write back <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you all for coming, and thank you for yeah. your contribution. Good night. Thank you.